Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're up to, including all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and you should come spend some time in our wide-open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, our guest today is Billy Yang, who is, among other things, a runner and a filmmaker and a podcast host, and he is someone who has been chronicling the sport of running in a fashion that is often beautiful and always very human. But it would be much better for you to watch his films and listen to his conversations rather than have me attempt to describe them. And you can find them on YouTube at Billy Yang Films or just look up the Billy Yang Podcast. But now in this conversation, you are going to get to hear two guys who have each made a movie about running 100 miles. That's, of course, Brendan Leonard and Billy talk about their respective films, bounce questions off of each other, and then, of course, in typical off-the-couch fashion, we jump down a bunch of different rabbit holes and talk about a whole bunch of things. I'm just going to now let Brendan Leonard kick things off for us, and so here it is, our conversation with Billy Yang. Here we go. Billy Yang, uh, filmmaker, runner, ultra runner, trail runner. Thank you for coming on our little off the couch podcast. Um, one of the first things I want to ask you is what was your brand of cigarettes that you smoked when you smoked for 12 years? I'm good at this game, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Whenever I encounter former smokers, I can pretty much narrow down within two and a half guesses what they smoked. Um, what would you guess, Brendan? So let's see if you are in line with my, uh, with my skills and my thinking. You're going to have to guess mine then. Um, gosh, I'm you were a smoker. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Six, six years, a pack a day. I'm going to say Marlboro Reds for you. Interesting. Why would you say Marlboro Reds? I'm not, I was going to say American spirits, but you don't seem like that, that. would have been my guess for the record. Yeah. I, I think you, you seemed like to do that for 12 years. They were so tightly rolled that you almost had to unroll them before you smoked them. And I just don't feel like you had, you would have time for that. And like, maybe, I don't know. You strike me as an American spirits guy. No, I, was, I smoked camel lights for a long, long time. I was going to say camel yeah. lights. Guess what, yeah. dude? We have that in common. <sighs> wow. Okay. And, yeah. and you also, so where I'm going with this is that you basically, and I, this is the same situation for me. I started running. Uh, ran a marathon to quit smoking. That was the original thing that I did. Oh, when is I was that right? Twenty six. Yeah. So your story is is quite similar. Um, we don't have to get super far into this because I've heard you tell it on a lot of different podcasts. But I think it's mm -hmm. I think it's inspirational for people who are like, oh, running it's so hard. How could I ever accomplish anything? Uh, I think I ran my first half marathon. My first race ever was back in uh, early February of two thousand seven. It was yeah. the Pacific Shoreline Half Marathon. Now it's called the Surf City Half Marathon. I, oh God, basically the furthest thing from an endurance runner. So I, I thought, 
after multiple failed attempts of, you know, you've probably done the same thing with patches and gums and everything. I just didn't have that, that strong enough why. And uh, it really wasn't until I had to really commit to commit to it when, um, and I'll fast track the story, when I thought I was going to be a police officer, which in retrospect would have been a horrible idea. But I actually got pretty far in the process and I saw all these fit guys and they were doing a lot of uh, running and there was... You just had to get in shape. The The two couldn't exist hand in hand, the smoking and, and being in the police academy. So I had to get serious about quitting. You know, at the time, anyway, I was serious about becoming a police officer. So I uh, kicked the habit by uh, a combination of Wellbutrin and uh, basically running out the craving in me. Like I would just run around an entire block whenever the craving hit and until I was totally gas and sucking air and a uh, cigarette was pretty much the last thing you wanted. So... Yeah, I mean that was the that was a method, and then when I found that the half marathon and a buddy suggested it, not too similar, dissimilar from your hundred mile story, except mine was obviously a lot shorter. Um, thought it was a good idea, and then it just something just clicked during that race, and I was hooked, and I signed up for a marathon like a month later. Yeah, did you have a day where you like that was the last day you smoked, or did it take you sort of were you kind of like uh, maybe I'll just have a couple today, and then. Or was there a clear day where it was just like, okay, I'm done? There was. It was uh, It was kind of, it was sort of random. It was a really good friend, Serena. Uh, we were talking about it and I think we were just talking at a party and I said, you know what, I'm going to pick your birthday as an official quit date. So it was October, I want to say it was like 2003, between 2003 and 2005. Mm-hmm. Okay. I only fell off once, but that was because of a girl I met at a bar and she was smoking. So I smoked one and that the entire rest of the night i was coughing like like a fiend and uh yeah never picked up a cigarette since i'm so happy that we once again have worked smoking into this running podcast i i think we might be nearing the point where we can just change the subtitle of off the couch from a running podcast to a smoking podcast so <laughs> this is great i'm happy about this i also just want to say for the record i've actually never taken a drag a single drag of a cigarette in my life, just in case we have listeners out there thinking like, well, shit, I didn't used to smoke or I'm not a current smoker. It's okay. You're, you're still welcome here. Um, I did have like, can I be honest about something though? There are still every now and again, when I'm at a bar and I'm standing outside and get a whiff of cigarettes, I kind of miss it. I miss, I miss having the answer to everything, you know, where you're like, Oh, I'm bored. I'm, Ah. I just ate a nice meal. I'm sad. Yes. I'm tired. I'm not tired. I'm like, driving. Yeah. I'm taking a shit. <laughs> but isn't like, this yeah. exactly what cell phones are for now? Like cell phones are the new cigarettes, right? Like I find them less satisfying. Well, that's probably yeah. the right answer. Yeah. 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 Perusing Twitter after sex is not as cool. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> or just like, you know, I worked office jobs where you would go outside for five minutes and just stand there and stare. That was like, the best. Watch things go right and you don't do that anymore you don't just go stand outside because it's not acceptable or whatever like so. dude i remember one of my first jobs post-college i was working for a dot-com and we had these three balconies and all the smokers were congregated there and i would have buddies who would just coming in as like me and a couple of friends were walking towards a balcony and they would do a, a about face and just join us and smoke another bud because you why know, not smoking was cool back then i know now yeah. it's much maligned and the cigarettes are 12 dollars a pack and so not as cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I'm thankful. 
I feel like it was the last vestiges of it being any sort of cool. You know, like there were still movies where characters smoked back when I was doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And now it's like, I don't know. You just, I just don't feel like you're going to have that uh, character who's like really charismatic, like vaping. The um, Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A vaping yeah. Ethan Hawke is not really cool. Oh, I don't know, man. I would, I would stand up for Ethan Hawke. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, oh, that's a good segue though. Um, so most people who... Would, Ethan Hawke or Yeah, smoking? I have no Ethan idea. Hawk. I can't wait to hear yeah. what we just segued to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to talk about... Um, I mean, I guess most people who have heard of you or who will hear of you will probably experience what you do as a filmmaker mm-hmm. um, on YouTube. You have almost 100,000 YouTube followers and some of your films are hundreds of thousands, millions of, millions of views. Um, I would imagine that it happens a lot that you're recognized at races or, or other running events um, because of that work. Uh, let me be clear, exclusively at races. Yeah, it's, but, but okay. you're famous so, in that It's way, not like sure. I'm getting mobbed when I'm, you know, meeting friends for brunch. No, it's, that's, that's nice. You can just, you can still exist as a non-celebrity in the world and, you know, go to the grocery store and stuff like that. Yeah. But I guess I want to, I want to talk about how your, or I want you to talk about how your style of filmmaking, how you approach things and maybe some of the film influences that you've, that you've had. I mean, are you... You said you're a bad YouTube watcher, but do you, I guess, do you watch people's personal films like say like Casey Neistat and say, oh, you know what? I could, you know, that shot might work for something I do. Or are you more like looking at sports documentaries or how how do you approach it um, now, I guess, or, or at the start, either one is is an interesting answer for me. Yeah, I guess it's a, uh, amalgam of different creators slash filmmakers uh casey neistat as you mentioned it's an incredible one and i he's maybe one of the few youtubers i watch on a semi-regular basis and he can make anything interesting from i don't know something as significant as as meeting his wife to insignificant as combating a anthill problem in his backyard you know he just (laughs) i think the mark of a good filmmaker is that no matter what the topic is and it's a mark of a good documentary right no matter what it's about you may not be an expert at it you may not have necessarily be interested in it but if you can tell a cohesive story around it enough to engage and pull in audiences outside of that immediate uh you know whatever it may be in our case running then i think that's a mark of a good filmmaker so um, that's always my approach is to you know there are times i get in the weeds a little bit but i always try to think about you know, when I think back to the film, like the why, that was the first time I really tried to, in mass, talk to people beyond our sport and try to try to really articulate through visuals, through uh, VO, through a whole bunch of things, like why we're drawn to this on uh, both, I guess, I don't know, a superficial level and, and kind of um, a deeper level. Mm-hmm. So that was the attempt there. But, but I always... Yeah, I always have the end user in mind with everything, with podcasts, with uh, with video content. I always think about the end user, what they might want to see that isn't out there or what, frankly, could be told better. That's always the instinct. Okay. Sort of what do people need maybe at the time? It's weird because our sport for something that we're so, I guess, we say we love it and we're passionate about it, but it's the one thing, one hobby that I feel like it just needs an extra nudge to get into it. 
Like how many mornings have you guys had? And I'm talking to the people out there too, where you're just not feeling it for something again that you dedicate hours upon hours of doing and money into traveling to races. There are just so more days for me than not where when that alarm goes off, I'm not excited to get out of bed and go for a run. You know, I'm always excited to eat. I fucking love eating. <laughs> I love food. I love eating. I don't, I don't need anybody to like nudge me mm-hmm. into eating a ribeye steak. Well, when it comes to running and maybe it's just my natural genetic makeup, I don't have that internal fire, that drive. You know, everything about endurance running is antithetical to my makeup and my just general uh, achievement or lack thereof in, in my past life. Uh, so I don't know. I, I've said on maybe past interviews or past podcasts that it's very much like um, trying to pound a square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. So I definitely understand people out there who uh, lack the initial fire i guess to get out the door and and i try to speak to those people i think the only people i've met who are more excited about running than eating like who would rather go for a run than eat are pro ultra runners um who that makes sense but that's not that's not me either i would rather eat so yeah i hear you so when i when i first came upon your stuff um your videos I saw like this really high production quality and I assumed that you were a guy who was a professional videographer for like, I, I don't know. I just was like thinking, oh, Billy must be a guy who does like commercial videos for a full-time job, maybe for real estate or advertising clients. And then, you know, does these running things on the side. And I listened to an interview with you um, earlier this week where you were, you it, you'd started out sort of blogging about, uh, about running back a long, long time ago. Well, I mean, 150 years ago when blogs were cool. Um, so it, it was interesting for me to find that out. And then I kind of watched a couple more of your things and I'm like, no, he does sort of approach these from a writer perspective, especially some of the end of year, beginning of year things you do where it's a voiceover that you write. Do you feel like that's true that you approach films from a writer perspective first? Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily, I do love writing and I almost miss writing, um, especially when I pull up older blogs and I almost could read it as a, uh, as more of a third party observer or reader, I guess. And, um, shout out to larunner.com, by the way, my old blog. And yeah, I guess I, I always think about story and I always think about packaging it in a way that it's easily digestible and entertaining obviously and there's uh, the usual start middle and end and the the ebb and the flow um you know that's something i i don't want to get too off topic here but i just feel like we don't value nearly as much in the society as the the journey of the person and and why it's okay to have struggles sometimes and and not everything can be you know people talk about the privilege of being a child of coming from a wealthy family. And I'm like, well, actually, no, I don't know. Like I, I look back at my story as an immigrant, as somebody who overcame uh, just learning the language and, and trying to assimilate. And, and I, I see value in that now. It, of course, in the moment, you're like, fuck, this sucks, man. Like everyone looks and talks differently from me. But I do think that just embracing the the ups and the downs of the journey and and you know when i decided to show like most recently i I made a film about my john muir trek and 
my feet got fucked up and I'm, you know, this supposed ultra runner who's run 100 mile races and and I'm having problems with blisters on, on a fucking walk in the woods, you know, <laughs> and it sucked. But um, but I think it's really in kind of embracing that aspect of struggle and, and showing it in a way where, uh, you know, these things are achievable and ultimately more fulfilling. So I don't know. This is a long-winded way of answering you, but I've never like put labels as or really thought of myself as one thing or another. But I guess ultimately, as a storyteller, you want to you want to show that right the entire arc of the journey, the good, bad, and the and in my case, the ugly, because my feet got fucked up. Um, you want to show all of that, and I think there's more of an appreciation of the end result as a as a the full you know the full aspect of that story. Mm-hmm. That your feet are the first shot of that John Muir Trail video, right? It's like, or maybe you're you're laying in bed and then you get up and I'm like, yeah. wait, he's starting here. And then I looked at your feet and I was like, Jesus. And then I realized it was the end of the, the thing. But yeah. Yeah. I want to ask a bit of a related question. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of different mediums here um, from blogs to writing to YouTube videos to, to documentaries and the rest. And have you had kind of clear chapters where you've been really into exploring certain genres or has it always been a bit like messier than that? Probably the latter. I think it's just whatever medium happens to be either relevant or uh, or sparks an interest in me. Obviously, when blogging was a thing, uh, filmmaking at the time was probably you know, unless you had a hundred thousand dollar budget and and could access, you know, RE cameras and you needed a whole entire production. So just filmmaking was not really possible to the scale. And of obviously there was no medium in which to express your uh, visuals. So uh, yeah, it was just more of the sign of the times. And I think also the podcast was uh, something that I was always kind of reluctant to to play in until semi recently or as recently as a couple of years ago even though i was a fan of it for the longest time i still remember uh consuming i think endurance planet was like the first podcast i really listened to in the endurance space back in 2008 and 9 and um, 7 and so yeah i yeah i just if i see a a way in which i can create value or feel like i'm not just uh just another voice and can contribute in a positive manner, then I'll I'll jump in. But yeah, it's just whatever works. And I, I think as much of a fan as I am of TikTok, for instance, uh, I I haven't quite felt the urge to create in that space. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's you. There's always going to be there's that one social media app that's going to make you be like, I'm too old for this, and I am now going to be left behind. And I feel like that about TikTok. I'm like. I don't think I can do it. I think I'm just going to get left in the dust here, you know, stick with, stick but, with what uh, I'm doing. You know, everything ages up, right? right. Everything, uh, Facebook at a time, yeah, a um, YouTube at a time. And I think, I, I don't really see it that way as like, oh, it's just like a kid thing. And, and, and you know, I, I think it's just, um, everything's a, kind of related from a storytelling perspective. And, and I think whatever like calls to you, I think it's just, you know, I think when it does, if it does, you should uh, should attempt to create in it. And I don't think there's one thing is inherently better than the other. 
do you think you gravitate? That's a great point. Um, do you think you gravitate towards things making media that is, I guess, more labor intensive, that is more craft that will, you know, your, your YouTube videos aren't going to disappear after 24 hours or whatever. Do you think you do more of that? I personally have trouble doing like Instagram stories cause I'm like, ah, oh, this is just like a thing, you know, that's like, doesn't take much effort and I don't know if I'm doing it right and it's going to be gone anyway. So what's the point? Um, do you feel like you are more apt to do those things? Yeah. You know, actually when the story element came out on Instagram, I thought they were so contrasty because Instagram as a whole, or at least the, the initial iteration of it was about posting singular, well-crafted, well-filtered, well-edited photos. And you want to tell the perfect story and you want to do the, you know, you want to, you want to write the perfect pose to, to accompany said photo. And then this messy thing, which they, I mean, let's be honest, they fucking stole from Snapchat came about where you're just like shooting vertically and, and trying to capture your run, a shaky footage of your run or shaky footage of the, the brunch that you're having. And it seemed conflicting to, uh, to live in the same, to live in the same space. So it's almost like a hoarder's mentality of like, these things are so precious. I need a way to hold on to it somehow mm -hmm. and have it live uh, long beyond its 24 hour life cycle. But, um, I do think there is a, a thought process of not being too precious about everything to just putting it out there. Whoever consumes it, consumes it. And if they miss out, they miss out. Um, so I, there is that duality in me where, you know, sometimes I, I see something appropriate for one channel or one medium or one way of consuming it. And then there's another one that I want to live in perpetuity. So it, for Instagram, for example, I, I rarely post Instagram posts. I do a lot more of playing in the, the 24 hour life cycle because, uh, there's only so many things that I really want to preserve for a while, I guess, um, if that makes sense. Do you, you, um, alluded to this a little bit before, but, um, in other interviews, you've talked about immigrating to the U S when you were six, young, six years old, didn't speak any mm -hmm. English, um, and how your biggest desire for through, you know, um, those years in your teenage years was to fit in. And I assume you're working on that or figuring your way through that. How do you think that influences the art you make that that's same desire to sort of fit in or be accepted, I guess? Yeah, well, we all want to be accepted, right? But I think the distinction from my thought process back then to now is just to stand out more and to be more of an individual and embrace the differences. So um, I, my instinct is always that than to just have my content be like everyone else's. So there's the, there's a certain tone and timber of some like YouTube videos, especially like vlogs, where they all sound the same. And that always drives me nuts. I actually hate the term YouTuber. Because uh, <laughs> I, I think it might be for that reason. You just kind of lumped into this broad category of, hey, this is your boy, Billy Yang, coming to you live from... Uh, uh, yeah. Don't forget to click subscribe. And, uh, uh, and it's just like the same cookie cutter just please accept me kind of <laughs> content. And I, I try to run from that as much as I can. So, you know, you were talking about subscriber count or view count. And 
if I'm completely honest, like I don't give a shit. I care more about. I guess I care more about the the feedback that's when you find traction, when you find meaningful traction, when you feel like it it actually hits. And there's multiple ways to feel that. That's a barometer that I look towards, and I I really couldn't care less about view count or. Or maybe the proportionality of the likes and the dislikes, I, I kind of pay attention to. But outside of that, yeah, at, at the end of the day, I just want to make meaningful content and content that that does something within someone. Hopefully, not in a bad way. Billy, it sounds like to me from what you just said, there was an initial highly understandable interest in being accepted in a new culture, society, whatever. But then you're like, yeah, I got there. I'm good. And you could stop sort of maybe worrying, right? Sometimes in life, there are clear evolutions. And so it's not that given an early experience, it left you with a taste for, I kind of am always hungry to find acceptance. It's like you you found that and understandably initially, then it sounds like you got there and now you're like, I'm good. And now it's like, how, in fact, do we stand out, do things that are different, not more of just more of the same? Does that fair, sound like a fair categorization? Yeah, there is that duality that will always live in me. I think we can always go back to a certain age when you can viscerally feel that. And I, I remember a story. This story is when I was when I thought I finally achieved that cool status and acceptance among my peers. This was in junior high school. And I was, I rolled with the cool crowd. And I remember walking around and uh, my birthday was coming up. So I handed out flyers for my birthday. And my mom bought <laughs> a shit ton of food from Costco. We were going to do a grill out at a nearby park. And I, I probably invited like 50, 60 kids in my grade class. About seven people showed up. And I can always go back to that moment and be like, Fuck, I don't care how many views, how many uh, downloads you get in your media consumption. Like, I finally made it. I achieved some level of status. I am always that kid. So, yeah, I mean, there's always that duality that exists in me where I guess we're all trying to find our people and our place in the world and acceptance among our peers. But at the same time, there's this, I don't know, like artist sounds a little too high fluent, but there is that side of you that wants to really distinguish yourself and be different. And, you know, it's somebody I look up to a lot and Steve Jobs always had that mentality and, and that was part of the brand work, right? To think different and to be different. And so, yeah, I guess that duality will always exist in me. And, um, you know, I think most people can relate to that because we're all inherently our 10-year-old or 15-year-old selves and we can always go back to that moment. That's such a heartbreaking birthday party story, but also like a marketing story. You're like, oh, well, what happened with the, why did they not uh, consume the product? And why did they not show up for the product at the end at the, at the park? So you do quite a bit of brand storytelling or brand supported storytelling where you are making films about uh, athletes. You're not, you do a great job when you're in front of the camera or it's those personal, those end of year videos where it's like your, your voiceover um, and your mostly shots of you. Do you have a story about one of those gigs for a company where you're you're like your job is to show up and tell a story about athlete X at race race X and how things 
like, is there an extremely challenging one that people would have no idea um, how much hair you lost or how much sleep you lost once you, like you got there and things just didn't turn out the way that you were, you were thinking and you had to do all sorts of other scrambling to actually make a story. Like, is there, is there one story like that or, or a couple that you could share where it was just like, Oh, I got all these notes, but I got to restart and go with like, you know, write things down on post-it notes and figure out how this to actually make a, 10 minute video that's actually going to say something. Is there something like that? Yeah, there's two that come to mind. One from a just production, purely production side of things where everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And that was when I made a film about the 2015 UTMB slash CCC story for Nike trail running. And well, initially the entire concept of the video was going to be about the camaraderie and and this and that and then just one athlete after another they just dropped out right so there was at, at the time they were very well known in the ultra running community as being a like a true team like in the sense that a college team or a cross-country team would be but as soon as like the the athletes started dropping on they you know it got whittled down to i think four or five in total that ended up showing up in chamonix the story had to pivot a bit and then, of course, it's just a wild card. The race in itself is a wild card. You don't know how they're going to do, when they're going to drop out, if they're going to succeed. These are these are things that play themselves out within a 12 to 24-hour uh, cycle. And so I, I had to pivot there because, it, as it turns out, the, there were a couple of athletes in particular that did really well. Actually, all, all of the athletes really did exceptionally well. But there were also the logistical uh, challenges of trying to cover a race that starts one of the races, a hundred K race, the CCC started at 9 AM in Italy. And there was a secondary race, the UTMB, the ultra trail du Mont Blanc, the 105 mile race that started at 6 PM that same day. And I was the only filmmaker. I was the only person. So it was like jumping in and out of cars. I remember that. I remember, being completely exhausted after Zach Miller and Tim Tollefson won the CCC. They were one and two, uh, did really well, finished in 12 plus hours. To go from the high of that to immediately jumping back into a car and then following a 100 mile race that was in progress was just extremely challenging from a just a pure logistical standpoint and fatigue standpoint. But you add to that, for whatever reason to this day, I can't figure it out. But there was this energy playing against me. When I asked the athlete team manager, Pat, to hit record on a camera, on a static camera, it didn't record. I remember I got a drone up at one point where the card wasn't formatted correctly. So all this really cool footage that I shot just did not exist and unrecoverable. All this shit just kept happening. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) I swear, like to this day, there was this, there was some energy that really challenged me and, and played against me but i remember at the end of it i think the mark of a good storyteller is that no matter what you have in front of you if you can craft something that is where it's almost better to have like limited ingredients to play with or in this case footage because it really stretches you creatively and so i remember being for what i ended up putting together for what i had i was extremely proud of that a second example that comes to mind is when I created Life in a Day, which is about a film about four uh, elite level women running the Western States 100. 
And that's how I packaged the story. That's how I sold it to the two brands that ended up supporting it and Hoka and Koo. And from mile 16 on, the, the entire day pivoted. The main star, Magdalena Boulay, who was sponsored by both, dropped out due to some mysterious flu-like symptoms. So we didn't even get her on camera after she started the race. When she dropped, she dropped at mile 16. I remember getting the update and my heart just sank. So there was that. And then the second, a second athlete, Anne Mae Flynn, was running reasonably well. And then her day came apart. And uh, she ended up walking a good chunk of it. So that happened. I got extremely dehydrated and I had 100 mile people literally passing me up the climb uh, to to uh what is that aid station at mile 54 michigan bluff like they were asking me if i was okay (laughs) while they were in the middle of their race because i i just lost focus and stopped taking care of myself and i was running this point this 26 mile point just to get footage like really deep in the race course so that happened and um yeah i think after that point i mean that was a decent sell decent sized production for me where i had you know a photographer i had a couple of video guys and so I had had this excessive amount of footage, but I also that almost challenges you more because you have you want to tell it in a concise way, A, and then B, two of your four stars end up having a horrible day. One end up dropping early on, the other one ends up dropping a little bit later. So um yeah, those are the two examples that come to mind. Huh. Yeah. I it's it's such a suppose anxiety inducing thing <laughs> to think about that happening so yeah. um follow-up question to that so your film the why about you running uh leadville 100 mm-hmm. how much how much pressure did you feel on yourself to to finish be like well um if i don't finish that's not a very good story. like was the film part of you going i gotta do my you know i gotta make this i can't just like because i think there's a point in the film where you're just like ah everything in me says i want to quit right now so did did you just in your head were you going i could quit but this film is not about (laughs) someone running you know like 45 miles or 50 miles you know like did you did you have that moment at all or did you feel a little bit of that pressure well so you're talking about the scene at Winfield, which is the 50 mile turnaround point. Yeah. And I actually had this question for you because again, um, and people weren't privy to this. I talked about your film, how to run hundred miles because it came out around the same time. <laughs> Did you feel any pressure to finish because of the film? At, well, absolutely. You, you still have to answer my question, but, um, <laughs> I will. I yeah. will. So the, the day, uh, I mean, we were too, like, we had no idea what we were doing. And I, I just had talked to Jason and said, look, you know, one of us has to finish this race so we can make a movie, preferably you, because the story is about you, but I'm, I'm here too. Um, but yeah, I think I was raw. I robbed myself of having actual emotion during Mm -hmm. the race because I was just like, you know, mile 96 and a half or whatever going, Hey, you told Kate that she can't come up and hug you right away at the end of the race. Cause we don't, you know, we don't know that we don't know who she's not a character in this film. Like it has to be me and you hugging at the finish line. Like how, however artificial that sounds. He's like, I think I told her. I'm like, Oh no, dude. Like she gets, so there's like just a little bit of stress where you're like, we have to get the, you're thinking to yourself like, okay, we're going to finish probably, but we have to get the finish line shot or did we get it? You know? And I also had, had an alarm on my phone to go off every hour to take like a video diary 
just mm. uh, just an iPhone video and just say, here's how we're doing. And most of that was not very compelling content, but you know, it was always in the back of your head. Like, are we getting it? And yeah, and it's not a, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a very chill event to be thinking about something else large in the background. And your, your film was not your first hundred mile race. So you were aware of how it was going to feel and everything like that and that you could do it, you know, like it was conceivable. So I imagine there was a little less stress on your end, but did you, how did you feel? I don't know, man. I always feel like a bit of a fish out of water at these events uh, in terms of pure athletic ability or my confidence in said ability is not a lot. <laughs> so anytime I step to the starting line, it, um, there's just so many things playing in my head of like what could go wrong. And I'm always off, almost always off on what, what ends up invariably going wrong. And in this case, it was just, um, yeah, my legs were shot. They were tired. And I, I remember sitting there at the 50 mile turnaround at Winfield, the prevailing thought wasn't necessarily how I'm going to finish this film. Cause if you ask me in the moment directly, as you did just now, you're like, I don't give a shit about a f making a fucking film. Like, I'm, I feel bad about my friends. I feel bad <laughs> about my my crew support who dedicated this time to come out, fly out to Colorado, uh, you know, eschew sleep and and being with their families to uh, and and I guess to a degree spend um, just spend this incredible amount of bandwidth. As you know, as both of you guys uh, may know, crewing takes a lot of fucking effort and time and and just like lack of sleep and you have it's such a selfless act that i felt the worst about that and i felt some motivation because you're again you're just grasping at straws and you're like okay well this big why of of running 100 miles like fuck that shit that went out the window a long time ago and you're looking for these microscopic anything that gains traction within you to just take the next step forward so at that moment i i distinctly remember it being about my friends going fuck i feel bad for these guys like why <laughs> why <laughs> why am i putting these guys out when when shit is unraveling and and how do i make them somewhat how do i salvage their weekend ostensibly is what i was <laughs> probably thinking you sound that you feel like i feel like i should invite you to be an honorary midwesterner with that outlook yeah like, oh, i don't want to put all my friends out like you're exactly yeah yeah I, i'm and again, it goes back to probably goes back to that uh, acceptance part of of me, right? That exists in me, yeah. Where I I I don't want to let people down, or I want to be accepted by them, and it's a very codependent way of thinking. And I, <laughs> you know, sometimes it works. In this case, sometimes I hate myself for thinking that way. Yeah. Um, I have two two film questions too, um, related to the story falling apart as you're trying to tell it. Have you seen the documentary Mistaken for Strangers about the National? Of course, man. Okay. So so you're aware of the the masterful. Well, I guess what is your what is your feeling about that film? Uh, well, I'm a huge National fan, so okay. I've, you know, I own the film, I watched it several times, and uh I I loved I loved all the behind the scenes and the quirks of of uh of the band. So, yeah, I very much enjoyed it. And uh, his brother was just <laughs> aces and and showing it and both you know being behind the camera but also showing off his personality yeah um so it's yeah it's matt berninger is the lead singer of the national it's right. made by his younger brother tom right yeah mm -hmm. 
and you're he's he's not a professional filmmaker he just brings a camcorder while he's supposed to be doing basically a tour tour manager job like or getting the band water bottles and stuff and and he's like asking he will pull the band members aside for interviews and just blow it and ask him things like the drummer i just remember him going so when you go on stage do you have your wallet in your pocket and you're like, oh my God, it's so embarrassing. He asked that question. And then you're like, wait, I'm actually curious about this. And the drummer, the drummer goes, yeah. And he goes, why? I'm like, I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> so I went to, I found out that was playing at the Alamo Draft House in Denver when we were there. And I was like, oh my God, it's just like a Wednesday night. Let's go see, you know, Mistaken for Strangers, even though I've seen it three times and it's only like a 70 or 80 minute movie. And before they started the movie, the manager came out and I could see this guy standing in the doorway and I'm like, that's Tom Berninger. And he came out and introduced the movie and he was 100% as uh, awkward in person. Yes. Like, it was just like, wow. I wouldn't expect anything less. No, it was unbelievable. (laughs) um, Second question, maybe this will segue us into talking about food because we, we need to talk about food at some point. Off the Couch, a smoking and food podcast. About running. About (laughs) Okay, so let's talk food. What you got? Second second question, another documentary, City of Gold, uh, about the LA Times food and critic, Jonathan Gold. Have you seen that? I've seen, I, I think that may fall under the uh, distracted Billy, ADD Billy category. Um, yeah, I'm a, I was a huge Jonathan Gold fan. I've been to, I've tried to check off as many restaurants on his list as I possibly could, but um, I have not consumed that fully. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great movie, but if you're a fan, it's probably not going to reveal a ton of new stuff. It was my introduction to him, I guess. Does his presence as a sort of food tourist of the world, uh, of LA, are you a bit of that type of person living there and, and seeking out food? Yeah, I think one of the appeals, and, and trust me, I get all the flaws of LA and I, I constantly bash my head against um, against the door because of some of them. But one of the perks, huge perks, is that L.A., because it's so big and so vast, you, to borrow the North Face term, you can never stop exploring and finding new places. And so that always being a tourist and always looking around and, and discovering new places and, and new things is there's just no uh there's just no dearth of it and so yeah i guess there's always that adventure side of me obviously when it comes to hitting the road and exploring uh, different places in the states but when it comes to being a tourist around food and restaurants uh, yeah i always have that side of me and uh, la is a great great food city among the best if i could be so uh, self-indulgent i think when it comes to the best kind of Korean food, when it comes to the best kind of Italian food, pizza, even uh, ramen, all these different ethnicities and cultures, LA is just phenomenal for that. So I, I think that's been, you know, we talked offline about me possibly exploring different places to live eventually. That's the first thing that I'm always wrestling with. It's like, God damn, LA is so awesome for this. And um, I think the only comp would be a place like New York, but hell to the no about living in New York, especially these days. And um, so, yeah, yeah, LA is great for that. And, and that part definitely resonates with me. If someone's coming to visit you in LA and is like, we're getting lunch and dinner, do you have two spots off the top of your head where you're like, well, you're only here for 
you know, 12 hours, we have to do these two things. Yeah. Well, first of all, depending on the person, I would take them on a hike or a run. We just want to eat food, Billy. Again, the duality in me is that I need to earn it and I need to be able to consume it guilt-free. Got it. So we're definitely, yeah, we're definitely butzing, you know, we're definitely breaking a sweat preceding that. So I definitely have a spot, uh, this trail Los Leones, which is a seven and a half mile round trip right along the coast. I take all my out of town friends there who haven't been to LA. So we do that first. We knock that out. And it's important geographically for those of you who live in LA or understand LA that we we talk about places not by mileage or distance, but by time. So it takes 20 minutes to get there or 20, 30 minutes to get here. So I would stick to the west side because it is the Santa Monica Mountains where the Los Leones Trailhead is. After that, I would take them, I would stick to the west side and have lunch at a, at a deli called Bay Cities. And they make these sandwiches, these incredible sandwiches that are the size of your head. They put, they layer with all this great stuff. They put uh, spices and, and oils and just a really, really good, the sandwich I'm referring to is a, it's called the Godmother. And it's just like an Italian sandwich. And it's a really popular spot. So I would take them there. Following that, I would take them to Sycar Donuts because you got to get dessert, right? Sycar Donuts is incredible. And then for dinner, I would probably go Koreatown. LA has a huge Koreatown. I'm Korean. I love Korean food. And there's just, it's almost like a city in of itself. It's incredible. So there's a ton of spots to go there. I'd probably take them to a, have a authentic Korean barbecue experience complete with soju, Korean beer, like watered down Korean beer. It's awful, except when you're having Korean food. <laughs> um, and then that would complete the evening. Wow. I'm so hungry Excellent. now. So I think a lot of people these days are actually kind of thinking about the moving question, right? And obviously that's been brought on because of our COVID circumstances. But given what you've said, Billy, and you're, you've kind of been on that like, what about possibly relocating? I think I want to ask the version of this question where we take COVID out of the equation. Could be an interesting answer one way or, you know, if we add that in or take it out. But if you had to move somewhere, say in the next three months, would you be more inclined to make a move to another city or say go the like mountain town route? And let's, I think I want to ask this, t let's like, let's take COVID out of it, right? And so, like, you're going to relocate and you're going to be in this place for maybe the next five to 10 years. What's currently of more interest to you? All right, I'll play along in this fantasy world right. where COVID doesn't right. exist. My God, uh, that, that will take some stretching of the imagination. I, I guess I was thinking about Denver because it seems, again, it seems it has to check off a few boxes. A, access to a major-ish airport, given how much I travel or traveled, but I'll say travel in present tense because again, I'm playing this game where COVID doesn't right, exist. Right. We can still travel. <laughs> All right. So that's of utmost importance because to live in a small town and have to take a plane to get to a, you know, I, I live where I live right now, I'm 15 minutes to LAX. And uh, th yeah, that's, and that's a $15 Uber slash Lyft ride. Shout out to Lyft. And so that's important. And Denver, I don't know, like Denver is kind of a pain in the butt because your airport is so damn far away from the city, but um, it, is a, it is a big airport. So 
So Denver is a front runner there. Food scene, obviously, as we just talked about, is very important and a diversity of food options. And I'll put coffee in there too. I need, I need to have a good cafe where I can work out of and switch things out. Number three, dating scene. Look, I'm going to be honest. I'm a single dude. I want to pull larger than like 14, you know, single women in a small mountain town. So I have to consider that. So Denver is up there. And uh, yeah, quality of life and weather. I guess I'll put hand in hand. One of the reasons I love living in Southern California is the weather. It's, right now, it's like 75 degrees. And, you know, we're in the early throes of November and it's awesome. So I don't know exactly how I might feel about feeling so landlocked because I'm also half a mile from the beach. And there's just this inherent, I don't know, I can't quite describe it, but there's just some comfort in knowing that I'm uh, seaside and it's accessible to me. But uh, that's just, uh, that may just be the LA in me. But uh, yeah, those are the boxes that it has to check. So I would, I would say Denver for now, but I haven't played around in Denver nearly enough. Every time I end up there, I, I just end up in like Boulder or Leadville. And that's why I reached out to Brendan when I went through there last and fucking Brendan was more to be found. So um, I still yet to explore it, but I think the idea of Denver the idea. appeals to me because of the, of the more moderate temperatures. I think the, uh, you know, it's dry. You don't have humidity, which is huge for me, which is why like, no offense guys, but I can't even consider the Midwest to the East coast and, uh, you know, all the other reasons. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I have a list of restaurants I can give you if you really want to go hang out there, um, which is, I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it'll match or even get close to your LA stuff, but it could scratch the itch, I think maybe for, for yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a shortish flight and reasonably cheap. So I can always get back to LA. It's not like, you know, and you know, I do have family here. So that's another thing that's kind of tethering me to LA, but yeah, I think Denver is a strong contender. I just, again, I, next time I go through, I just have to stick, stick in Denver and, and not see friends in Boulder and Golden and those areas. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of pros and cons. I, it's a, I mean, mostly it would be the price of real estate and, and rent, I think is probably the big, the big con that most people would. Not do. if you're coming from Again. LA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. So I'm going to well, walk yeah. around going, Oh my God, this is so cheap to uh-huh. live here. Yeah. 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 I feel like um, people resist Californian immigration in a lot of the West. Like, oh yeah. And then all the Californians showed up. And I don't think that's a sentiment you experience in Denver. It's more like, oh, Texans or, I mean, pretty much every, I feel like everybody there is from the Midwest. No one's actually from Colorado. So it's sort of a welcoming, you don't really get that, that sort of uh, question is not asked of you. Where'd you come from? You know, like maybe, maybe more than I am aware of, but I think you would be fine there. And and welcomed with open arms. Yeah, and I, the Broncos are okay. Yeah, and I could I could see myself rooting for the Broncos. I like John Elway, and um, I'm not crazy about the Nuggets, but it's a it's a strong sports town. So there's that too. Wait a sec. Now you now we got to ask. This is you you led to this segue. We need to now talk about NFL interests, NBA interests. Where are you at? Are you the casual? Are you not casual? Uh, I pride myself in being a fairly pragmatic person when it comes to most things in life. <laughs> but when it comes to sports, I am the pettiest, most irrational, <laughs> uh, most uh, just quick to get angry 
and disproportionately so for how much sports ultimately directly impacts your life. But I am a sports fan through and through. I think one of the first jobs I thought about or one of the first careers I thought about having was a NFL coach. Wow. And I remember when I uh, when my ADD would kick in, I would draw football plays in class. So, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a super fan. Um, I'm a fan of, uh, no surprise here, all things L.A. So when it comes to football, it's the Rams. When it comes to basketball, it's the Lakers. When it comes to baseball, it's the L.A. Dodgers. Okay. And hockey, I can take or yeah. leave. Okay. Interesting. Rockies, I think, still have the cheapest tickets in Major League Baseball. Um, as far as as far as the low end of the spectrum, the rock pile is still like $4 for a seat. So um, just just FYI. I mean, if you... favorite, favorite L.A. Rams player ever. Yeah, it's probably going to come from the modern era because I wasn't that much into them. Yeah, there was like Eric Dickerson and, and Jim Everett and, and those guys. But um, I, I might have to say Aaron Donald. Like we're watching a legend Absolutely in the works like uh, up there with uh, Lawrence Taylor. And, and you know, he's all of maybe 6'1 and 280. Beast. But he is freakishly strong and he can blow, he can pick up linemen, 300 pound linemen and just toss them aside. So it's like, it's like seeing the Hulk out there. (laughs) Are we talking about the Incredible Hulk earlier or at least a Drunken Hulk. Facsimile of him on Twitter. (laughs) That's a great answer. Shout out to at Drunk Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Aaron Donald. Uh, That's a great answer. So so as far as sports journalism goes, then um, I find it interesting or... I think about it this way that, you know, trail running and ultra running, you know, you're, you're a well-known filmmaker within those uh, media, media maker within that, within that universe. And you are also capable of standing on the, you know, the starting line with, oh, there you go, uh, standing on the starting line of a hundred mile race with, you know, people who are, um, you know, the, the top people in the sport. Um, and running the same race along the same course. And as part of your work, you have to do, if you're covering an event like that, you do end up doing, like you were saying earlier, you were doing a 26 mile, you know, section of course, you have to be fit. Yeah. That doesn't, I don't know if that parallels so much with sports journalism and traditional ball sports. Um, do you enjoy the fact that you have to sort of, when you, especially because you're, you know, part of your work is actually, running entering and competing and then you know making media about those things that you do do you enjoy that aspect of it or would you or how's it you know as it compares to like a basketball announcer who maybe played basketball for a couple decades and then doesn't play very much shows up in a suit and sits off the sidelines and at the end of the game smells okay because they didn't break a sweat Mm -hmm. does that appeal to you or do you do you like that aspect of the whole thing yeah i I don't know. I'm a fan of the sport first and foremost. So uh, the privilege of being able to share stories of some of these people that I just admire almost from a (laughs) these people are almost like aliens to me. Uh, The Courtney Dewalters of the world, the Tim Tolfsons, the Jim Walmsley's, they're just they're so effortless in the way they move and and for how long they can move and set speed. They're like they're like these minotaurs or or like half their bodies are gazelles and <laughs> so i just i don't know being able to even share miles with them or you know where i'm running out a mile till i'm you know at like 
completely anaerobic, can barely, I'm, I'm trying to repress my breathing onto like the camera mic so, so it doesn't yeah. overwhelm it while I'm running next to like a Courtney or a Tim who is just doing it so effortlessly and so gracefully is, um, you know, on one hand feels like a, almost a completely different sport. But um, to be able to, I don't know, like the Western States is a primary example of just being able to be playing the same arena. When I ran it for the first time in 2015, I could not get over the footsteps that tra uh, traveled the course, or at least in the first half of the race when I wasn't uh, doing the in invariable uh, unraveling of, uh, of my race. But yeah, I, I just have such a reverence for the athletes that came before me, especially the the top end athletes who are running these races so well and showing what's possible in, in terms of human achievement and capabilities. So I guess to answer your question, Brendan, I'm just a fan first and foremost. And uh, I think that's one of the distinguishing characteristics about our sport versus NBA is that you can't run alongside LeBron James and, and you know, ask them questions and just to be able to participate and play in the sport is a, is a huge honor. So I, I love that aspect of it. Like I said, I'm a fan first and foremost. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how close are you to, you know, changing the name of your company to Billy Yang Media? Because you're, you're now podcasting as well, um, which seems a natural extension of probably what you do it's like a an interview segment that you would do for a film but you actually get to keep the whole thing and post online um and i guess how 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 do you feel like that's gone for you are you are you excited to keep going with it what do you see is happening for podcasting for you in the next year or so yeah i don't know i've uh, i'm always impressed by people who can output creative content on a regular steady basis because i'm I feel so scattered and all over the place in terms of when I feel inspired and when I feel motivated because of said inspiration. I don't want to, I don't want it to feel manufactured or I have to do it because I have to adhere to some set schedule. Now, obviously it's different when you're working uh, as in partnership with a media or not a media, a, a, a brand and you're trying to create content together. Sometimes the forced creativity works when you have, clearly outlined deadlines and whatnot but for me and my personal content that always fluctuates and changes there was one uh one time i was really into uh these narrative podcasts so i produced one on my own but then i quickly found there are a lot of fucking hard work <laughs> and so i don't know how much of a viable solution that is for upcoming podcasts but it's still a place that or a space that i want to continue to play in and and see if there's a a shortcut in how to produce said content. So it, it's always changing. I would say for right now, I'm still really uh, digging the content that I'm putting out. And I'm always, the content that I put out will always reflect my personal interests. I guess it's a shortcut or a shorter way of saying it. So uh, for the time being, it's still motivating to me. But to say that that won't evolve, yeah, I, I can't really say. But for the here and now, I'm really digging it. So every, every year or a lot of years, you've done sort of an end of year or slash beginning of year video for people, uh, you know, sort yeah. of either looking back or looking forward. Um, 
do you are you planning on doing one at the end of 2020 and have you collected any notes about it yet or are you is there a direction you think it's going or do you would you rather not talk about it no i'm fine talking about it i just can't forecast how i will feel or how much things might change between now and i guess i have to start thinking about it right because it's early november at the time of this podcast you know i think there's generally a central theme tied to most of those pieces and and for me the the north star in, in most of those videos if you if you dissect them or maybe they're fairly obvious it's just about i don't know just making hay while the sun's out right mm-hmm. go out and live life and prioritize certain aspects of your life not all the time not around the clock don't think about life and death type shit because that's a you know, super exhausting to think about. But on the macro, I try to keep that focus and have that as a North Star. So when I think about or when I talk about this year to most people, I do talk about, man, like think of all the good stuff that's coming out of this year. Things that we really hadn't considered or we had to force. You know, when I was talking about forced creativity, it is very much in line with what's going on with uh, COVID and 2020. I'm walking around Hermosa Beach where I live now and there's this incredible energy to the town, this sleepy little beach town where that wasn't previously in existence because everyone's outside now and there's this alfresco dining and there's this incredible energy now where you can see people who are dining at said places and you can almost interact with them. Of course we can't, but or you shouldn't, but it when I just walk around town, so that's an example of something like that. I think it's also revealing some of our weaknesses or things that we just had to change. And it's also having us reprioritize or see value in just the simplicity of meeting up with friends and interacting with friends and having that support system, having that community. All these things that we forgot about or took for granted are now front and center. So how long that lasts, I think it's just human nature to, you know, when things invariably return to this fantasy land that Jonathan brought up, um, hopefully we can retain that or we can keep that somewhat close to our, our hearts and our heads. It's hard to forecast that, but these are the ideas that are kind of swimming through my head right now, especially in this election cycle where I think it's so much about the have and the have nots. There's like this negative energy to everything that everyone's saying because you're generally putting down the other side to to elevate your point of view. And I just inherently, there's something about that that just doesn't land with me well. And that's about as political as I'm going to get. But it's, just, you know, like I'm, I'm just waiting for November to be gone with or this early part of November so that we can kind of get back to our regular way of life and hopefully focus back on what's good about humanity and people and instead of what's wrong with people. Mm-hmm. Good, good answer. I feel like that was a little bit of a brainstorm session for you. Um, no, I, can I have the recording of yeah, that? So yes, I can, we'll uh, get it to you. Come December 31st. I believe we put these on the internet. <laughs> if we do. I remember right. The internet. Let yeah. me write that down. <laughs> So with that in consideration, if people haven't heard seen these any of these uh, end of year videos that you do, 
what one of them would you guide them to? Uh, just to be like, hey, here's an example, or here's my favorite one, or here's one that feels relevant this year that you would say, if you got 10 minutes and you want to know about Billy Yang, who would, where would you send them? I won't presume what lands or speaks to people. So I will maybe the only plug I'll really make is youtube.com slash Billy Yang. Check it out. They were, they're generally made at the end of the year, as uh, Brendan said. And I just try to recap my year, but also tell a higher theme behind each uh, each year to not make it so self-serving, but also create value for people. Again, I think we're all in need of inspiration and it doesn't have to be from my channel. It can be from others, but I just want to put out good, positive messaging out there and remind people what we're all capable of, especially in this year when things were so damn divisive and and people are just shitting on each other and judging each other for you know their political leanings or for mass or for whatever. I I want to get back to that place of more so than even a COVID-free world. I just want to get back to a, a world where we see the best in each other and not critique the worst. And I know that sounds that sounds a little uh, cheesy, but it's true. It's what I this. As a as a passive bystander to all the pol- uh, politics and everything else going on right now and, and COVID, and I just can't wait until we resume or go back into that headspace where we're trying to see the best in each other, and 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 it's driving me crazy right now with all this negativity out there right now. It is interesting that like with the divisiveness and the fighting and the name calling and your side is wrong and I'm clearly superior in intelligence or whatever other metric, just thinking and like looking at these election returns and the rest, democracy is about consensus fundamentally, right? And it is not about like, if the three of us have to figure out a path forward about where we're going to lunch or let alone issues of healthcare, it is not about me coming in, digging in my heels and just trying to steamroll your two opinions, right? It is about, it's like, have we just forgotten this? Like how this is supposed to work? And I sure hope that our local leaders, our national leaders and the rest just come back to like, when I come into this conversation or negotiation, it isn't about me trying to get exactly what I want. It is about asking you two, what are you into? What are you about? What do you care most about? And then just finding that consensus, that common ground where, I don't know, that just doesn't feel present at all, at all. It is, yeah. it, it's a win or lose, full stop. I have to destroy you. You have to lose. I have to win. That's it. And I'm like, what happened here? Well, something about intellectual honesty just goes right out the window when it comes to politics. Some of the most creative, outside-the-box thinkers that I have in my life who allow themselves to get intertwined with their political leanings, all that goes out the window. And they will they will prejudge or they will judge based on one vote. I mean, think about how much your vote says about you and the type of person you are especially when you come from a predominantly two-party system. I mean, that's it. You got candidate A, you got candidate B, and you have to make a choice. 
So I don't know. I just want to get back to a place where we're critical thinkers, where we appreciate nuance in each other and this world and the society and with laws and and not just be so black and white, one side versus the other kind of thing. And um, yeah, I can't wait for that to uh, I mean, it may never we may never achieve that given how uh, ramped up everything's getting from mainstream media to social media. But that's the that's the idea anyway to achieve that that level of um, compassion and critical thinking. Compassion and critical thinking. Two terms that I don't often hear going hand in hand. So I like that. Um, I like that. What the hell? We started off talking about... Smoking. <laughs> yeah, we started talking about brands of cigarettes to, yeah, talking about fixing the world. And uh, this went, it took a very deep turn. And we eventually got to compassionate critical thinking. I like mm -hmm. it. I feel like our work here is done. Man, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about about your life and, and your work. It's been it's been really cool. It's and it's super fun for me to do the like go back and research people when when you say, Yeah, I'll be on the podcast. I'm like, okay, I know who you are, right? And then go spend four, five, six hours like looking back through your stuff and you know, finding out more stuff about you to to ask you about. So that's been fun for me. So thanks for thanks for letting us do that. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. So uh, right back at you. Really appreciate this time, guys. And uh, thanks for having me on. Excellent, man. Hey, you take care, everybody. Check out Billy Yang's stuff in podcast form and on YouTube form. And uh, we'll, of course, have links in our show notes to all of the above. And uh, Billy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Billy for the conversation. And be sure to check out his excellent films and interviews on YouTube. And also check out the Billy Yang podcast. I also want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Crested Butte, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.